to the Podlets Podcast, a weekly show that explores cloud native one buzzword at a time. Each week, experts in the field will discuss and contrast distributed systems concepts, practices, trade-offs, and lessons learned to help you on your cloud native journey. This space moves fast, and we shouldn't reinvent the wheel. If you're an engineer, operator, or technically minded decision maker, this podcast is for you. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to the Botlet. And we have a new name. This is our first episode with a new name. Don't want to go much into it other than we had to change from the Kubelets to the Botlets because the Kubelets sort of conflicts with the, an existing project. And we thought it was just better to change the show, the concept, the host, everything stays the same. I am super excited today because we have a special guest, Joe Beta and Brian Lyles. Michael Gashk. So, Joe, just give us a brief introduction. All the other hosts have been on the show before. People should know about them. Everybody should know about you too, but there's always newcomers in the space. So give us a little bit of a background. Yeah, sure. So I'm Joe Bita. I'm, I was one of the founders of Kubernetes back when I was at Google, along with Craig McLucky and uh, Brennan Burns, with a bunch of other folks joining on soon after. I'm currently principal engineer at VMware, helping to cover all things, you know, Kubernetes and Tanzu related across the company. And I came into VMware via the acquisition of Heptio, where, you know, Brian's wearing the shirt today. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, and so, you know, left Google, did that with Craig for about two years. And then uh, it's almost a full year here at VMware. I think we're at 11 months officially as of like two days ago. So. Yeah, really excited to be here. Yeah, I am so excited you're here. And your name is Joe Beta. I always say Joe Beta. You know what? It's four letters and it's easy. Like, it's amazing how many different ways there are to pronounce it. So, you know, I don't get picky about it. <laughs> okay, cool. Well, today I learned. I am very excited about this show because basically I get to ask you anything I want. <laughs> um, I'll do my best to answer. Yeah, you can always not answer. There are so many interviews of you out there on YouTube, podcasts, and we are going to try to do something different. So let me fire the first question I have for you. When people interview you, they ask you yeah, the usual questions, the questions that are very useful for the community. But I want to ask you is this, what are people asking you that you think are the wrong questions? You know, I don't think there's any bad questions like this. I think that there's there's a ton of interest at sort of, you know, when we're talking about technical stuff at different parts of the Kubernetes stack, I think that there's a lot of business context around sort of like the container ecosystem and the companies and, you know, around sort of forming Heptio, all that. A lot of times I'll have discussions around sort of career and sort of like what led me to where I'm at now. And I think those are all like a lot of really interesting things to talk about all around all that. And the one thing that I think is um, doesn't always come across is, you know, these things are all interrelated. At a certain point, the technology and the business and career and work life, all those things really sort of impact each other. And so I think it's a mistake to try and take these things in isolation. There's a ton of bleed over. I think one of the things that we try to do at Heptio, and uh, you know, I think we did a good job, is 
is recognize that for anybody senior enough inside of any organization, they really have to be able to play all roles, right? Everything at a certain point, everybody is a, is a business person fundamentally in terms of actually moving the ball forward for the, for the company, for the business as a whole. And so, yeah. And so I think one of the things that I enjoy is actually being able to look at things from all those various different angles and, you know, try and, and find a good path forward. All right. So taking that, so you've gone from big co to big co to VC to small co to big co. What has that unique experience taught you and what can you share with us? So Brian, you know my resume better than I do apparently. So like <laughs> I started my career at Microsoft and you know cut my teeth working on Internet Explorer and doing client side stuff there. I then went to Google in the office up here in Seattle. It was actually in Kirkland, this little hole-in-the-wall temporary office, pre-rework type of thing. And thinking, hey, I want to do some server-side stuff. Um, Worked on Google Talk, worked on ads, worked on cloud, started Kubernetes, was a little burned out, took some time off, goofed off, did this entrepreneur-in-residence thing for a VC, and then started Heptio and and then sold to VMware. When you're in a big company, especially when you're more junior, it's easy to get caught up in playing the game inside of that company. And when I say the game, what I mean is that there are measures of success within big companies, and there are ways to advance, see approval, see rewards that are all very specific to that company. And I think the culture of a company is really you know, defined by what are the parameters and what are the, the successes, the success factors for getting ahead inside of each of those different companies? And so seeing like, you know, I think a lot of times, especially when, you know, I was at Microsoft straight out of college, I was, I did a couple of internships at Microsoft and then joined. Leaving Microsoft that first time was actually really, really difficult because there is this fear of like, oh my God, everything's going to be super different. And it turns out that as you bounce around the industry a little bit, there's actually probably more alike than there is different. The biggest difference, I think, between large company and small company is really, and like, you know, I'm a, I'll throw out some science analogies here. I think oftentimes organizations are a little bit like the ideal gas law. So, okay, I may be going past y'all, but this is N, uh, PV equals NRT. So pressure times volume equals number of molecules times temperature, and then the R is a constant. So the idea here is that this is an equation where as you add more molecules to a sort of constrained space, that will actually change the temperature and the pressure, and these things all rise. And so what happens is inside of a large company, you end up with so many people within a constrained space in terms of the product space. And when you add more people to the organization, or when you're looking to get ahead, it feels very zero-sum. It very much feels like, hey, for me to advance, somebody else has to lose. And that's not how the real world works, but oftentimes that's how it feels inside of a big company, is that it feels zero-sum like that. The liberating thing for being at a startup, and I think why so many people get addicted to working at startups, is that startups are fundamentally not zero-sum. Everybody succeeds and fails together. When a new person shows up, your thought process is naturally like, awesome, we got more cylinders in the engine, we're going to go faster, which is not always the case inside of a big company. Now, I think as you get senior enough, all of a sudden these things change because you're not just operating within the confines of that company, you're actually 
again, playing a role in the business. You're looking at the ecosystem. You're looking at the community. You're looking at the competitive landscape. And that's you know, where you have your eye on the ball. And that's what defines success for you. Not the internal company metrics, but really sort of the business metrics is what defines success for you. So the thing that I'm trying to do here at VMware now is, you know, as we do Tansu, is make sure that we recognize the sort of unbounded possibilities in front of us inside of this world, make sure that we actually focus our energy on serving customers and in doing so outcompete others in the market. And it's not a zero-sum game. It's not something where, as we bring more folks on, that, that we feel like we're competing with them. So that's a little rambly of an answer. I don't know if that hangs together for you, Brian. No, no, that's, um, that was pretty good. Thanks. Cool. So, <laughs> Joe, that's probably going to be a context switch now, but you touched on the time that when you went through the burnout phase. And then last week, I think you put out a tweet on, it's like so much stuff going on. And you know which tweet I'm talking about? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so in the Kubernetes community, you are a rock star. At VMware, you are already a rock star being on stage at VMworld, shaking hands with Pat. I mean, there's so many people, so many emails, so many slacks, whatever, that you get every day. But still, I feel you are able to keep the balance, stay grounded, and always have a chat. Like, even though sometimes I don't want to approach you, but sometimes I do and have some crazy questions, maybe. But still, you answer them. You're not pushing people away. How do you manage with mental stress, preventing another burnout, like what is the secret sauce here? Because I feel like I need to work on that for me. <laughs> well, I mean, it's hard. So the tweet that I put out was last week, I was coming back from Barcelona and, you know, tired of travel. And I'm looking forward to, you know, right now we're recording this just before KubeCon. And then after KubeCon, planning to go to reinvention Vegas, which is just a, like a social denial of service. It's just overwhelming reinvention. And so I was tired of traveling. I, I posted something and came across a little stronger than I wanted to in that, like, I just hate people, right? And I was at that point where it's just like you're traveling and you just don't want to deal with anybody and every little thing is really bugging you and, and annoying you. But I think burnout is an interesting thing. So for me, and I think there's different causes for different folks. So number one is that it's always fascinating when you start a new job, your calendar is empty, your responsibilities are low. And then as you are successful and you integrate yourself into the organization, all of a sudden you find that you have more work than you have time to do. And then you hit this point where like you try and sort of like, I'm just going to keep doing it. I'm going to power through. And then you finally hit this point where you're like, this is just not humanly possible. And then you go into a triage mode and then you have to decide what's important. I know that there's more to be done than I can do. I have to be very thoughtful about prioritizing what I'm doing. And so there's a lot of techniques that you can bring to bear there being explicit about what your goals are and what your priorities are, writing those things down, whether it's an OKR process or whether it's just like, here's the, my top three things that I'm focusing on, making sure that those things are purposefully meaningful to you, right? So understanding the difference between urgent and important, which, you know, these are business booky type of things, but like, it's this idea of like, there are things that feel like they have to get done right now. And then there are things that are long-term important. And if you're not thoughtful about how you do things, you spend all your time doing the urgent things but you never get to the stuff that's actually long-term important. And that's a really easy trap to get yourself into. Finding ways to delegate to folks is really, really helpful here in terms of empowering others, trusting them. It's hard to let go sometimes, but I think you know being able to set the stage for other people to be successful is really empowering. But then just recognizing it's not all going to get done. And that's okay. And you can't hold yourself to expect that. Now, with respect to burnout, for me, the biggest driver for burnout in my career has been when I felt personal responsibility over something 
but I haven't had the tools or the authority or the ability to impact it. So when you feel in your bones ownership over something, but yet you can't actually really own it, that is what causes burnout for me. And I think there are studies talking about how like the worst job is middle management, right? It's not being the CEO. It's not being sort of like new to the organization, being junior. It's actually being stuck in the middle because you're given a certain amount of responsibility, but you aren't always given the tools necessary to be able to drive that. Whereas the folks, you know, at the top, oftentimes they don't have those constraints. So they actually own stuff and have agency to be able to take care of it. And I think, you know, when you're starting out more junior in the organization, the scope of ownership that you feel is is relatively minor. And so that being stuck in the middle is the biggest driver for me for burnout. And a big part of that is just recognizing that sometimes you have to sort of take a step back and personally sort of divest that feeling of ownership when really it's not yours to own. I'll give you an example. Is that like I started Google Compute Engine at Google, which is arguably the sort of foundational cloud service for GCP. But as it grew, as it became more important to Google, as it got reorged, more and more of the leadership and responsibilities and decision-making I'm up here in Seattle, moved down to Mountain View. A lot of that stuff was folks that sort of hadn't been in the cloud market, but had been Google for 10 or 15 years coming in and they're like, okay, that's cute. We got it from here, right? And that was a case where it was my thing. I felt a lot of ownership over it, but it was clear after a certain amount of time, hey, you know what? I just work here. This is, you know, I'm just doing my job and I do what I do, but really it's these other folks that are, that are driving the bus. And um, that's a painful transition to actually go from that feeling of ownership to I just work here. And, you know, and that I think is one of the reasons why oftentimes people leave companies. I think that was one of the big drivers for why I ended up leaving Google was that lack of agency to be able to impact things that I cared about quite a bit. I think that's a, one reason why, well... I think that working in, in companies where things are moving fast because they have a very clear, very worthwhile goal provides you the opportunity to uh, just have so much work that you have to say no to a lot of things like what you were saying and also take ownership of pieces of that work because there's more work to go around than people to do it. And for example, uh, since Tap to VMware, I mean, okay, I'm plugging. This is a big plug for VMware, I guess, but it definitely is a place that's moving fast. It's not crazy. It's reasonable because everybody, pretty much every one of us has grown up. But there is so much to do and people are glad when you take ownership of things. And uh, that really, for me, is a big source of work satisfaction. Yeah, and again, I think it's that zero-sum versus positive-sum game. And I think that when you there's a lot more room for you to actually feel that ownership, have that agency, have that responsibility when you're in a positive sum environment versus a zero sum environment. All right. So now I want to ask you a technical question. All right. <laughs> um, and not a really hard one, but just more of how you think about this. So Kubernetes is five and almost five and a half years old. And one of the key components of Kubernetes is SCD. Now, knowing what we know now in 2019, would Kubernetes have used etcd as its key store, or would you have gone another direction? I think etcd is a good fit. The truth of the matter is, is that we didn't give that decision as much thought as we probably should have early on. We saw that it was relatively easy to stand up and get going with. 
And, you know, at least on paper, it had the qualities that we were looking for. And so we started building with it and then just sort of ran with it. Something like Zookeeper was also something we could have taken, but the, the operational overhead at the time of Zookeeper was very different from CD. I think we could have gone in the direction of, and this is what HashiCorp does for a lot of their tools, where they actually build the data store into the tool in a native way. I think that can lead in some ways to a simpler getting started experience because there's just one thing to boot up, but also it's more monolithic from a sort of backup maintenance recovery type of type of thing. The one thing that I think we probably should have done there in retrospect is try and create a little bit more of an arm's length relationship between Kubernetes and etcd in terms of having some cleaner interfaces, some more contract driven stuff so that we could have actually swapped something else out. There's folks that are doing it, so it's not impossible, but it's definitely not something that's that's easy to do or well-supported. So I think that that's probably the thing that I would change in that space. Another thing we might want to change is like, I think it might have been good to be more explicit about being able to actually shard things out, right? So that you could have multiple data stores for multiple resources and actually find a way to sort of horizontally scale. Now we do that with events because we were writing events into etcd and that's just a totally different stream of data, but everything else right now. And I think, you know, there's room to do this into the future. I think we've been able to push etcd vertically up until now, but there will come a time where we need to find ways to shard that thing out horizontally. Is it possible though to use a different data store than etcd for Kubernetes? So the things that I'm aware of here, and, and there may be more, and I may not be 100% up to date, is I do know that the Azure folks created a proxy layer that speaks the etcd protocol, but then is actually implemented on the back end using CosmoDB. And so that approach there was to essentially create a translation layer. And then Rancher created this project, which is kind of a little bit, if you squint at it, a bit of a fork of Kubernetes, where they're, I believe, using Postgres as the database for Kubernetes, and I haven't looked to see exactly how they ended up swapping that in. Uh, my guess is that there's some chewing gum and bailing wire, and it's quite a bit of effort for each sort of version upgrade to be able to actually adapt that moving forward. Okay. But don't know for sure. I haven't looked deeply. Okay. Now, I would love to philosophize a little bit, or maybe a lot, about Kubernetes. In the spirit of thinking of different questions to ask. So I had a bunch of questions and then I was thinking, how could I ask this question in a different way? Maybe that this is not the right quote unquote question. So here is the way I came up with this question. So we so divided out there. One camp loves Kubernetes, another camp, you know, so hard, so complicated, so complex. Why even bother with this? I don't understand why people are using this. And so basically there is that, sentiments that Kubernetes is complicated, and I don't think anybody would refute that. Now, is that even the right way to talk about Kubernetes? Is it even not supposed to be complicated? I mean, what kind of a tool is it that we are thinking it should just work? It should just be super simple. Is it true that it should be a super simple tool to use? I mean, that's a loaded question, Curly. <laughs> Let me just first say that, like, number one, if people are complaining, I mean, this I'm, I'm stealing this from Tim Hawkins, who I think, you know, this is the way he sort of takes some of these things in stride. If people are complaining, then you're relevant, right? If nobody's complaining, then nobody cares about what you're doing. And so I think that it's a good thing that folks are taking a critical look at Kubernetes. That means that they're taking a look at it, right? And, you know, we're five years in, Kubernetes is on an upswing. 
that's not going to necessarily last forever. I, you know, I think we have work to do to continually earn Kubernetes place, you know, in the, in the technology stack over time. Now, that being said, Kubernetes is a super, super flexible tool. It can do so many things in so many different situations. It's used from everything from in retail stores across tens of thousands of stores, sort of edge type of solutions. People are looking at it for telco, 5G. People are looking at it to like even run it inside cars, which is like scares me, right? And then all the way up to like folks like at CERN using it to do data analytics for higher energy physics, right? So the technology that I look at that's probably most comparable to that is something like Linux. Linux is actually scalable from everything from a phone all the way up to an IBM mainframe, but it's not easy, right? I mean, like, like to be able to adapt it across all that things, you have to sort of essentially download the kernel type, make config, and then answer 5,000 questions, right? For those who haven't done that, it's not an easy thing to do. And so I think that a lot of times people might be looking at Kubernetes at the wrong level to be able to say this should be simple. Nobody looks at the Linux kernel that you get from sort of Git cloning Linus's fork and compiling it and saying, yeah, this is too hard. Of course it's hard. It's a Linux kernel. You expect that you're going to have a curated experience if you want something easy, right? Whether that be an Android phone or, you know, a, you know, Ubuntu or what have you. So I think to some degree, we're still in the early days where people are dealing with it perhaps at too raw a level versus actually dealing with it in a more opinionated way. Now, I think the fascinating thing for Kubernetes is that it provides a lot of the extension points and patterns so that we, we don't know exactly what those higher level, easier to use abstractions are going to look like. But we know, or at least we're pretty confident that we have the right tools and the right sort of environment to be able to experiment our way there. So I think we're not there yet, but we're set up for success. So that's the first thing. The second thing is that Kubernetes introduces a whole bunch of different concepts and ideas, and these things are different and uncomfortable for folks. And it's hard to learn new things. It's hard for me to learn new things, and it's hard for everybody to learn new things. When you compare Kubernetes to, say, getting started with the modern front-end web development stack with things like Babel and React and, like, how do you deploy this and what are all these different options and it changes on a weekly basis, there's a hell of a lot in common, actually, between these two ecosystems. They're both really hard. They both introduce all these new concepts, and you have to be embedded in it to really get it. Now, that being said, if you just want to like take raw JavaScript or jQuery and have at it, you can do it. And you'll see on Hacker News articles every once in a while where people are like, hey, you know, I program my site with jQuery and it's just fine. I don't need all this new stuff, right? Just like you'll see folks saying like, you know, I just SSH'd in and actually ran some stuff and it works fine. I don't need all this Kubernetes stuff. And it's like, you know, if that works for you, that's great. Kubernetes doesn't have to solve every problem for every person. And then the next thing is that I think that there's a lot of people who've been solving these problems again and again and again and again, but they've been solving them in their own way. And so it's not uncommon when you look at backend systems to join a company, look at what they've built and found that it's like a complicated, bespoke system of like chewing gum and bailing wire with like, you know, maybe a little bit of Ansible, maybe a little bit of Puppet, some Bash. Everybody has sort of built their own complex uh, overall system to do a lot of the stuff that Kubernetes does. And so I think one of the values that we see here is that these things are complex. You need complex systems to do it, but shared complexity is more valuable than personal complexity. And so if we can agree on some of these concepts, then that's something that can be leveraged widely and it'll fade to the background over time versus having everybody sort of invent their own complex system every time they need to solve these problems. 
with that all said, we got a ton of work to do. It's not like we're done here and I'm not going to actually sit here and say Kubernetes is easy or that every complex thing is absolutely necessary and that we can't find ways to simplify it. We clearly can. But I just think that when folks say, hey, I just want this to be easy, I think they're being a little bit too naive because it's a very difficult problem domain. I'd like to add on to that. I think about this a lot as well. And and something that Joe said to me a few years back where Kubernetes is a platform for creating platforms is very, very applicable here. Where we're looking at, as an industry, we need to stop looking at Kubernetes as some kind of destination. Your destination is really running your applications that you know give you pleasure or make your business money. And Kubernetes is a tool to enable us to think about our applications more rather than the underlying ecosystem. We don't think about servers. We don't need to think about serve, about storage and networking. Even things like finding things in your cluster, you don't have to think about that. Kubernetes gives it to you. So if we start thinking about Kubernetes as a way to enable us to do better things, we can go back to what Joe said about Linux. Back whenever I started using Linux in the mid-90s, guess what? You know, we compiled it. Make config, make menu config. <laughs> that stuff was hard. It was hard and it was slow. But now think about this. In my office, I have three different Linux distributions running. And you know what? I don't even think about it anymore. I don't think about configuring X. I don't think about anything. And one thing that where Kubernetes is going to grow is it's going to, we're going to figure out these problems and it's going to allow us to think of these other crazy things, which is going to push the industry further. And think maybe 20 years from now, if we're still running Kubernetes, who cares? It's, it's just going to be there. And we're going to think about some other problem and it could be amazing. This is good times. So, I mean, at one point, sorry, the dog's in a bark here. I mean, at one point, people cared about sort of the BIOS that they were running on their computers, right? Like, that was something that you stressed out about. I mean, like, back in the battle days when I was doing, like, DOS gaming and you're like, oh, well, this BIOS is incompatible with, high, like, IRQs and all that. And, like, it's just background now. Yeah, I think about this, too, as a developer. And I might have mentioned this before in this podcast. I have never gone from one job to another job and had to use the same deployment system. Every single job I've ever had, the deployment system is completely different, completely different set of tooling, and completely different process. Just being able to walk out from one job to another job and be able to use the same platform for deployment, it must be amazing. And on the, fl- on the flip side, being able to hire people that will join your organization already knowing how your deployment works, that has value in itself. It's a huge value that I I don't think people talk about enough. Well, honestly, this was one of the motivations for creating Kubernetes is that, you know, I looked around Google early on and and Google was really good at importing open source circa 2000, right? This is like, hey, you want to use libpng or you want to use this library or whatever. That was the type of open source that Google was really, really good at using. But then Google did things like, say, release the big table paper, and then somebody went through and it created Cassandra out of it. And maybe there's some ideas in Cassandra that actually build on top of big table, or like you're looking at MapReduce versus Hadoop. And all of a sudden, you found that these things diverge, and Google had zero ability to actually import open source circa 2010, right? It could not back import systems because the operational characteristics of these things were so alien when compared to something like Borg. And you see this also, like we would acquire companies and it would take those companies like way too long to be able to essentially replatform them, themselves on top of board. 
because it was just so different. So this is one of the reasons, honestly, why we ended up doing something like GCE is to actually have a platform that was actually more familiar for things like acquisitions. It's one of the reasons we did it. But then also introducing Kubernetes, it's not Borg. It's a cousin of Borg inside of Google. And for those who don't know, Borg is the container system that's sort of been in production at Google for probably like 15 years now. And sort of the spiritual grandfather to Kubernetes in a lot of ways. But a lot of the ideas that you learn from Kubernetes are applicable to Borg. It's not nearly as big a leap for people to actually change between them as it was before Kubernetes was out there. Joe, I got a similar question because it seems to be like you're a platform builder. You've worked on GCE, Kubernetes, obviously. What were the things, or if you would be talking to another platform architect or builder, what would be something that you would recommend to him based on your experience? Like, what is a key ingredient, technically speaking, of a platform that you should be building today or kind of the main thing or the, the lesson learned that you had from building those platforms? Like a technical advice, if you will. I mean, that's a really good question. I think, in my mind, the mark of a good platform is, is when people can use it to do things that you hadn't imagined when you were building it right? The goal here is that you want a platform to be a force multiplier. You want it to enable people to do amazing things. And you compare like, again, like the Linux kernel, even something as simple as like our electrical grid, right? The folks who sort of established those standards, God knows how long ago, right? 150 years ago or whenever, the whole Tesla versus Thomas Edison thing, DC, nobody had any idea the sort of long-term impact that that would have on society over time. So I think that's the definition of sort of a successful platform in my mind. And so you got to keep that in mind, right? I think that for me, a lot of times people design for the first five minutes at the expense of the next five years. I've seen a lot of times where you design for like, hey, I'm giving a presentation. I want to be able to fit something amazing on one slide. And you do it. But then all of a sudden, somebody wants to do something different. They want to go off course. They want to go off the rails. They want to actually experiment. And the thing is just brittle. It's like, hey, it does this. It doesn't do anything else. If you want to do something else, sorry, this isn't the tool for you. And for me, I think, you know, that's a trap, right? Because it's easy to get early users based on that very curated experience. It's hard to keep those users as they actually start using the thing in anger, as they start interfacing with the real world, as they deal with things that you didn't think of as a platform so I'm always thinking about how can everything that you put in the platform be used in multiple ways? How can you actually make these things be composable building blocks? Because then that gives you the opportunity for folks to actually compose them in ways that you didn't imagine starting out. So I think that's some of it. I started my career at Microsoft working on Internet Explorer. And the fascinating thing about Microsoft is that through and through and through and through Microsoft is a platform company. It started with DOS and Windows and Office, but even Office is viewed as a platform inside of Microsoft. They fundamentally understand in their bones the benefit of actually starting that sort of platform flywheel. And so it was really interesting to actually be during the sort of first browser wars of IE versus Netscape when I started my career to actually see the fact that Microsoft always saw Internet Explorer as a platform, whereas I think Netscape didn't really get it in the same way, right? They didn't understand the potential, I think, in the way that Microsoft did. And so for me, I mean, just being where you start your career oftentimes actually sets your patterns in terms of how you look at things over time. And so I think a lot of this platform thinking comes from just sort of imprinting when I was like a baby developer, I think. I don't know. It, just, it takes a lot of time to really sort of internalize that stuff. So, and the lesson here is, this is a good one, is that when we're building things that are bigger than us, don't think of your product as the end goal. Think of it as an enabler. 
And when it's an enabler, that's where you get that X multiplier. And then that's where, you know, you get all the residuals. And Microsoft, actually, it's a great example of it. My gosh, just think of what Microsoft has been able to do with the power of Office. And, yeah, and, that, and I look at I look at something like VB, right, in, in the Microsoft world, and we still don't have, we still don't have VB for the cloud era. We still haven't created that. I think there's still opportunity there to actually strike VB back in the day. For those who weren't there, struck this amazing balance of being easy to get started with, but also something that could actually grow with you over time because it had all these extension mechanisms where you could actually there was the marketplace of controls that you could buy. You could partner with other developers that were writing C or C plus plus. It was an incredible platform. And then they leveraged Office to extend the capabilities of VB. It's an amazing ecosystem. Sorry to mean to interrupt you, Brian. Oh, no, that's all good. I get as excited about it as you do whenever I think about it. It's a pretty exciting place to be. Yeah. I don't know. So, like, so I'll talk to VCs because I did the, the startup and the EIR thing. And I'll have them ask me things like, hey, where should we invest in the Kubernetes space? And my answer is like, you know, using this sort of uh, BS analogy, like you've got to go where the puck is going. Invest in the things that Kubernetes enables. What are the things that people can do now that they couldn't do pre-Kubernetes? Those are the things where we're going to see the explosion of growth. And so it's not about the Kubernetes. It's really about the larger ecosystem that Kubernetes is sort of the seed crystal for. And for those of you listening, if you want to get anything out of here, Rewind back about 20 seconds and, and play that over and over again, what Joe just yeah, said. This was brilliant. It's where the puck is going. It's not yeah. where we are now. We're building for the future. We're not building for now. And I'm looking at this tweetable quotes here. The last 20 seconds, so many tweetable quotes. So we, we have to decide which ones to tweet then. We will tweet them all. Oh, yeah. So here's another thing. Here's another piece of career advice. And like successful people are good storytellers. You can have the most beautiful technology. If you can't tell the human story about it, about what it does for folks, then nobody will care. And so I spend a lot of time on Twitter and probably too much time if you ask my family. But that medium of being able to actually distill your thoughts down into something that is tweetable, quotable, really sort of potent, that is a skill that's worth developing and it's a skill that's worth valuing. Because there's things that are like rolling around in my head and I still haven't found a way to get them into a tweet. And so like at some point I'll figure it out and, and it'll be a thing. But it just, it takes a lot of time to, to sort of build that skill to be able to sort of refine like that. I want to say uh, an anecdote <laughs> of myself. I interviewed a small, some tiny startup, maybe less than 10 people at the time in Cambridge, back when I lived up there. And the guy was like borderline wanting to hire me and no. And I sent him a, an email to try to influence his decision. And it was a long ass email. <laughs> and then he said, no, thank you. And then I got, we had a good rapport. So I said, well, you know, anything that you can tell me about your decision? And he said, he said something along the lines like, you know, I was too verbose. But that was pre-Twitter. Twitter, I think, existed, but it was at the very beginning I was using it. So yeah, people, be concise. <laughs> like decision makers don't have time to read long things. You need to be able to convey your message in short sentences, few sentences. It's crucial. All right. So we're worth. nearing the end. I want to ask another question and because these are random questions for Joe. So Joe... It is the week before KubeCon North America 2019, and today is actually an interesting day. 
a couple of neat things happened today. We had Docker. It was kind of neat. Docker split somewhat and sold part of it, and now they're going to be a tools company. That's kind of neat. We're, we're all still trying decoding what that, what that actually is. <laughs> yeah, but here's the neat piece. Apple released a laptop that can have 64 gigabytes of memory. And it has an escape key. There's a and it has an escape key. Like, this is brilliant. Yeah. I don't even know what the question was. What do you think about that? Okay, well, so first of all, I mean, Docker is fascinating. And I think this is, there's a lot of lessons there. And I'm not sure I'm the one to tell them. I think it's easy to sort of armchair quarterback these things. It's hard to live that story. And so I think that uh, it's fun to play that what if game. But, you know, I think it does show that this stuff is hard. You can sort of have everything in your grasp and then just sort of have it all sort of slip away. I think that's not anybody's fault. It's just sort of like there's different strategies, different approaches and, and how this stuff plays out over time. On the laptop thing, I think my current laptop has 16 gigs of RAM. And one of the things that we're seeing is that as we move towards a microservices world, I gave a talk about this probably three or four years ago. As we move to a microservices world, I think there's one stage where you create a bunch of microservices, but you still view those things as an app. So you say, this microservice belongs to this app. Within a mature organization, those things start to grow. And eventually what you find is that you have services that are actually useful for multiple apps. And so your entire production infrastructure becomes this web of services that are calling each other. And apps are just entry points into these things at different points of that sort of web of infrastructure. And so this is the way that things work at Google. When you see companies that are sort of microservices based, like let's take like an Uber or a Lyft or an Airbnb, as they diversify the set of products that they're offering, you know they're not running completely independent stacks. You know that there's places where these things connect to behind the scenes in a microservices world. What does that mean for developers? What it means is that you can no longer fit an entire company's worth of infrastructure on your laptop anymore. And so within a certain constraint, you can go through and actually say, hey, I can bring up this sort of canonical cut of microservices. I can bring that up on my laptop, but it will have dependencies that I either have to actually call into the prod dependencies, call into specialized staging, or mock those things out so that I can actually run this thing locally and develop it. With 64 gig of RAM, I can run more on my laptop, right? And so there's a little bit of kicking that can down the road in terms of like, okay, there's this race between more microservice versus how much I can import on my laptop. The interesting thing is that where is this going to end? Are we going to have the ability to bring more and more to your laptop? Are you going to be able to run in the split brain thing across sort of like there's people who will create network connections between these things? Or are we going to move to a world where you're doing more development on cluster in the cloud and your laptop gets thinner and thinner, right? So Either you absolutely need 64 gig because you're pushing up against the boundaries of what you can do on your laptop, or you've given up and it's all running in the cloud. Anyways, you might as well just use a Chromebook. And so it's fascinating that we're seeing the red sort of like this sort of divergence of sort of scaling up versus actually moving stuff to the cloud. I can tell you at Google, a lot of folks, even developers, can actually be super, super productive with something relatively thin like Chromebook because... There's so many tools there that really are targeted at doing all that stuff, you know, remotely in Google's production data centers and such. So that's, I think, the interesting implication from a developer point of view that the 64 gigabytes around. So what are you going to do, Brian? You're going to get the 64 gig Mac? You're going to do it? It'll be here week after next. <laughs> you really you already ordered it? <laughs> you are such an Apple fanboy. Oh, man. No, I'm actually, so not to go too much into it, 
I am a fan of lots of memory. And you know what? We work in this cloud-native world, and any given week, I'll work on four or five projects, and I'm lazy. I don't want to shut any of them down. So now at 64 gigs, I don't have to shut anything down. Yeah. I, it was so funny. When I was at Microsoft, everybody actually focused on sort of Microsoft Windows boot time. They're like, we got to make it boot fast. we got to make it boot faster. I'm like, I don't boot that often. I just want the thing to resume from sleep, right? If you make that reliable, I'm happy. Yeah. I frequently have to restart my computer because of memory issues. I don't want to know which app is taking up memory. I, I have a tool that I can look up, but I'm like, okay, just shut, shut it down. Flush the memory. I do have a question related to Docker. So Kubernetes... I don't know if it's right to say that Kubernetes is so reliant on Docker because I know it works with other container technologies as well. But in the worst case scenario, it's obviously, I have no reason to predict this, but in the worst case scenario where Docker, let's say, is discontinued, how would that affect Kubernetes? So early on when we were doing Kubernetes and you're in this sort of relationship with a company like Docker, you know, I looked at what Docker was doing and you're like, okay, where's the real value here over time? And in my mind, like I thought that the interface with developers, that sort of distributed kernel, that API surface area of Kubernetes, that was really the thing. And that a lot of the Docker stuff was over time going to fade to the background. And I think we've seen that happen because when we talk about production systems, we definitely have moved past Docker and we have the CRI, we have Container D, which was essentially built by Docker, donated to the CNCF as it's made its way towards graduation. I think it's graduated now. The sort of governance ties to Docker have been severed at this point. And so, you know, in production systems for Kubernetes, we've moved past that. I still think that there's developer experiences oftentimes relying on Docker and things like Docker files, I think we're moving past that also. I think that if Docker were to disappear off the face of the earth, it would be some adjustment. But I think we have the right toolkits and the right systems to be able to do that. And some of that is open source by Docker as part of the Mobi project. So the whole Docker file evaluation flow is actually in this thing called BuildKit that you can actually use in different contexts outside of the Docker game. So I think there's a lot of the, the building there. But the thing that I think is the most influential thing that actually I think will stand the test of time is the Docker container image format. That artifact that you upload, that you download, the registry APIs. Now, those things have been codified and are moving forward slowly under the OCI, the Open Container Initiative Project, which is kind of a little bit of a sister foundation-ish type of thing to the CNCF. But I think that's the influence over time. And then related to that, I think, you know, the world should be a little bit worried about Docker Hub and what that means for Docker Hub over time. Because that is not a cheap service to run. It's done as a sort of public good, similar to sort of GitHub. If the commercial aspects of that are not healthy, then I think it might be disruptive if we see something bad happen with Docker Hub itself. And I don't know what exactly the, the replacement for that would be overnight. That'd be incredibly disruptive. Should be Harbor. <laughs> I mean, Harbor is, you know, a thing, but somebody's got to run it. Somebody's got to yeah. pay the bandwidth bills. Right. It's, so it's thank you to Docker for paying those bandwidth bills absolutely. because it's actually been good for not just Docker, but for our entire sort of, you know, ecosystem to be able to do that. I don't know what that looks like moving forward. I think it's going to be, I mean, maybe GitHub with GitHub artifacts is going to pick up the slack. We're going to have to see. Cool. I have one last question from my end. Totally different topic, not Docker at all. Or maybe, depends on your answer, okay. Joe. So the question is, like, you're a very technical person. What is the technology or the stuff that your brain is currently spinning on? If you can disclose this, like, obviously no secrets, but like, what, what keeps you awake at night when you 
when your brain... I mean, I, I think the thing that... A couple of things is that, like, stuff that's just completely different from our world, I think, is interesting. I think we've entered a place where programming, computer science, this stuff is so specialized that, again, I talk about, like, if you made me be a front-end developer, I would flail for several months trying to figure out how to even be productive, right? I think similar when we look at something like machine learning. There's a lot of stuff happening there really fast. I, you know, understand the broad strokes, but I can't say that I understand it to any deep degree. And so I think it's fascinating and exciting the amount of sort of diversity in this world and stuff to learn that, you know, so Brian's asked me in the past, it's like, hey, you know, if you were going to quit and start a new career and do something different, like, what would it be? And I, I think I would probably do something like generative art, right? Like, essentially, there's folks out there writing these sort of programs to sort of generate art, sort of the little bit of the moral descendant of the sort of demo scene that was, I don't know, when was the demo scene happening, Brian? When was that? Oh, mid-90s or mid-early mid 90s. 90s. That's right. Oh, man. I was never super into that. I, I don't think I was smart enough. It's crazy stuff. I actually used um, to write demos. I know you did. I know you did. <laughs> that was, a, so, so, okay. So just for those not familiar, the demo scene was essentially like you wrote essentially x86 assembly code to do something cool on screen. And it was all generated so that the amount of code was vanishingly small. And so it was this sort of puzzle slash art slash like technical tour de force type of thing. We wrote trigonometry and assembler. That's literally what we did. <laughs> so I think a lot of that stuff ends up being fun. You know, stuff that's related to our world, I think about how do we move up the stack? And I think a lot of folks are focused on the developer experience. How do we make that easier? I think one of the things through the lens of VMware and Tanzu is looking at how does this stuff start to interface with organizational mechanics? How does the typical enterprise work? How do we actually make sure that we can start delivering a tool set that works with that organization versus working against the organization? And that, I think, is an interesting area where it's hard because it involves people. Like back-end people, like programmers, they love it because they don't have to deal with those pesky people, right? They get to define their interfaces, and their interfaces are pure and logical. I think that UI work, UX work, anytime when you deal with people, that's the hardest thing because you don't get to actually tell them how to think. They tell you how to think and you have to adapt to it, which is actually different from a lot of the, sort of the back-end, pure and logical types of folks. But I think there's an aspect of that that is sort of user experience at the consumer level. There's developer experience. And there's a whole sort of class of things which is maybe sort of like organizational experience. How do you interface with the organization versus just interfacing with individuals in either the developer or the, or the, the end user point of view? I don't know if like as an industry, we actually have our, our heads wrapped around that sort of organizational interface. Well, we have arrived at the end. Makes me so sad <laughs> because we could talk for easily two more hours. Yeah, we could definitely keep going. <laughs> We're going to bring you back, Joe. Don't worry. For sure. Anytime. Or do worry. <laughs> All right. So we are going to uh, release this episode right after KubeCon. Glad everybody could be here today. Thank you. Make sure to subscribe and follow us on Twitter. Follow us everywhere. And suggest episode topics for us. Bye. And until next time. Thank you so much. Bye. Bye. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Podlets Cloud Native Podcast. Find us on Twitter at ThePodlets and on the Podlets.io website. That is The Podlets altogether, where you'll find transcripts and show notes. We'll be back next week. Stay tuned by subscribing.